I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey, we're back. We had to take a little hiatus there for a couple months because of COVID and, well, life, but I'm really happy to finally be back behind the mic and creating some new episodes for you all. Now, we kind of left you with a cliffhanger after episode number eight, which was the first half of our interview with wildlife vet Dr. Mark Johnson. But part two of the interview is so worth the wait. If you haven't listened to the first half of the interview yet, I highly recommend that you go back now to episode eight and give that a listen before you jump into this episode. All of the stories he tells us today about his experiences working as the project veterinarian for the Yellowstone wolf reintroduction will make way more sense after you listen to the first half. Also, if you're a student or a professional working with free-ranging or captive wildlife, whether out in the field or in a zoo, I highly recommend you check out Mark's new online course, The Foundations of Wildlife Chemical Capture. This course will teach you everything you need to know about capturing, handling, and chemically mobilizing wildlife, and doing it in the most respectful, safe, and humane way possible. Plus, the course is now race-approved for continuing education credits for veterinarians and vet techs, so it's kind of a no-brainer. If you're interested in learning more about the course, go check out the links in the show notes. You've been waiting long enough, so now... Let's pick right back up where we left off with Mark. And today, we'll hear some of his stories of the most famous and legendary founder wolves of Yellowstone. He'll also tell us some stories of wildlife captures that didn't go quite as planned, and why you always need a plan B. So here he is again, wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Mark Johnson. So the wolf reintroduction was was full of amazing experiences and uh one was even related to the security boxes and it showed my innate instinct in how i subconsciously felt about wolves i was in the crystal creek acclimation pen in the it was all in the northern range of yellowstone park and I was in the acclimation pen with the wolves and they're all running around. I'm not concerned about that. We make sure that we never have our back to a wolf, but I'm not worried about the wolves running around the pen. And my colleagues and I, part of the wolf team, were picking up bones from the roadkills we had been feeding the the wolves. And we wanted to reduce the amount of bones laying down because we didn't want grizzly bears to come in and and try to share the meal. And uh, and we wanted to minimize uh, the attraction for grizzlies. I was at one end of the acclimation pen. It's a quarter acre in size. And one of the volunteers had come in and she was standing just inside the gate. I hadn't been in the pen very long and there was a wolf. His name was Blue because he had a blue hair coat. The only one we'd ever seen of the hundreds of wolves we've handled. 
and Blue always ran into the security box. He was usually there by the time I was in the pen, but at that time he was on my end of the acclimation pen. And the volunteer stepped in the gate. I didn't realize it at the time, but the gate was right next to a security box. But I didn't know that. I didn't notice that. So I looked over and all of a sudden this wolf, Blue, started running as fast as he possibly could straight at this volunteer. And I had the opportunity, after I left the pens, I realized this, to see what my instinctive nature was about wolves. And it scared the crap out of me that this wolf was going to tear her to shreds. That's really was, was my instinct. And I was not going to run fast enough to help her. And she was too far away from the gate to quickly turn around. And I don't even know if she even noticed the wolf was coming at her. And then when it did, when it was close enough, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can only imagine how afraid she was. And wolf, the blue, blue just came at her, just came straight, straight toward running, 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 almost faster as, as he got closer. And he zipped right past her and right into the security box because he was terrified of us. It, uh, it really told me a lot about myself uh, as well as about wolves. Your first gut reaction was you were worried that he was being aggressive, but in fact, it was the complete opposite. He was just running for his life, trying to get away. He was terrified, and that's yeah. usually the case. And there's many exceptions, of course. Um, and I, I kind of had a flashback as I'm telling this story. I was capturing handling wolves on Isle Royal National Park for Rolf Peterson for research. And I had never handled wolves before. My first, my first chemical immobilization of a wolf was on Isle Royal, and we were working um, off our backpacks, hiking the trail. And I remember releasing my first wolf, and I was terrified. Uh, I had a head cover on the animal. I gave the reversal, and and I was restraining the wolf a bit so it wouldn't get up too soon. I wanted the drugs to wear off. And so, in, you know, I'm ready to release the wolf. I'm giving myself the count of three. And I was going to run as quickly as I could away from this animal because I didn't want it to bite me as soon as I let go. And that's what I did is, is I rush, I let go and just flew back. And, and the wolf ran the other direction twice as fast. And, and I realized that that was the, the reflexive nature of wolves. We never want to be close to the mouth when we handle the wolves. There's many exceptions. Always assume the wolf will bite you. But when they come out of the drugs, like with a sudden wake or something, their typical nature, and never assume this, but their typical nature is to flee. The typical nature of a grizzly is to destroy. You know, <laughs> animals have a fight or flight reflex and antelope, for example, have a flight reflex. Well, the grizzlies have a fight reflex. That is their nature. They're not mean. They have a fight reflex. So when they react, it is to fight. And so those animals are definitely 
more dangerous to work with if there's sudden wake-ups than with a mountain lion, which flees, or, or with a, a wolf. Always assume they will bite, but, but that's not their instinct. So that was one experience with Blue running to the security box. The, the volunteer was quite fine and was willing to go in the pen after that. So uh, we, uh, we were able to continue our work. Listening to this story, I can definitely see how caring for these wild, relocated wolves inside an enclosed space of the acclimation pen could be a little hairy at times. But my bigger question was, what would happen when they were ready to actually open the doors to the pens and release the wolves? How would they react? So the first, the first wolves that we released, we moved as quickly as possible. We moved fast up to the door, chained the door open, left a deer carcass out, and ran as fast as we could away from that pen. Thinking they were going to just like shoot out immediately. Oh, immediately. <laughs> and we didn't want to scare them and scare them to run even farther away. That's how much we knew, <laughs> which was nothing. And, um, and so we went to a pullout, a parking area down the road, maybe half a mile away, and listened with radio telemetry to see how much movement there was going to be. And we waited and we waited, and, and the wolves never, they never left. <laughs> they didn't. And, and what it took was um, coming back to the acclimation pen and opening, creating an opening in their security area. They didn't want to run through the human gate. That's where the humans were. Oh. Now, I was upset at the time because they actually used chain cutters and they cut holes through that nice chain link panel that we were going to reuse for the next year. But they could have undid the saddle uh, clamps, and but maybe it was better that way, so it kept the structure of the pen in place. But So they cut a hole in the chain link fence, and then the wolves left. And typically, they would run a, quite a long distance as a group, and then they would come back and, and form territory around that acclimation pen. So that, that concept of the soft release was very successful in Yellowstone. I can say from experience that when we have these rare opportunities to care for, work with, and observe a truly wild animal that's in captivity, even just for a short while, it's absolutely true that these animals each have their own unique personalities. Each one is an individual. And sometimes, a particular animal will make an impression on you that lasts for years, or even a lifetime. For Mark, that animal was wolf number 10. There was one wolf in particular who stood out for everyone, and that was wolf number 10. He was really quite famous an amazing looking animal, um, always proud looking. Uh, I designed the holding pens for holding the animals up in Canada before we were gonna crate them up and load them onto the planes. They were basically oversized dog kennels, six foot wide, six foot tall, and 12 feet deep with extra sturdy chain link filled with straw and straw bales. When we released each wolf in their own pen, 
holding pen, they would cower in the back, hide behind the bales. But whenever I went to the pens to check on the wolves, number 10 would walk up to the door. He'd walk up to the gate and he would look straight at me. He would never growl. He'd never raise his lip. He wouldn't raise his skin or change his tail, but he would look with quite, with, with great comfort. He was quite confident. And he actually became the, the, the first breeding pair of Yellowstone Park. So number 10 showed that confidence that he showed in the holding pen in Canada. He showed in Yellowstone as well throughout his life in the reintroduction, and it was actually short-lived. When we went into the acclimation pens to pick up the, the bones, 99% of the wolves would run at the very back of the pen, pacing as fast as they could. And it was actually terrifying to watch because they would often run straight at each other, passing just by inches. And I was worried they would hit each other as they're running past each other. And they were terrified of us. But not number 10. When we would go into the pen and there's snow on the ground, maybe a foot and a half, two feet of snow, and we would pick up the bones, we would walk around and, and look at the scat for the health of the animals. Number 10 would circle around us, never in a threatening way, but he would follow the steps. When we went into the sub-enclosure, he would follow our tracks into the sub-enclosure and follow our tracks out. And, and so he showed a level of confidence that we never saw in any of the other wolves. Clearly there was something special about this wolf. But as Mark just mentioned a minute ago, wolf number 10's time in the reintroduction project was short-lived. And here's where the story takes an unexpected turn. During his time in, in that holding pen, that was the Rose Creek pen with number nine, a storm came up and blew a tree across one of the portable panels and, and the wolves were capable of hopping up onto the tree and escaping the holding pen. But the only one who did that was number 10, who had this level of confidence and, and number nine, and she was with number seven at the time. This is before we knew she was pregnant. And um, they were too terrified to go anywhere except in the safe security zone. So we realized we needed to let number nine and number seven go so they could all be together. Or maybe we could entice 10 back in the pen, but we knew that was extremely unlikely. Maybe we could open up the pen and let him come and go and, and let it pre make a premature release. So wolf number 10, being the brave one, had escaped from the pen, but his pregnant mate, wolf number nine, was still inside with another wolf. Mark and the biologists knew that the most important thing right now was to reunite the family. So we decided to form a crew. We had some photographers and, um, and the biologist. We were going to leave a deer outside the pen as well as inside the pen and, and kind of hold them in this area. We didn't want number 10 to head back up to Canada. Little did we know there's no way with a pregnant spouse inside the pen. 
And um, we started walking up the drainage, still out of sight of the pen. It was a whiteout blizzard, almost a whiteout blizzard. And as we're walking at the bottom of this drainage, trying to be as quiet as possible, a wolf started barking on the hillside above us on the right. And it was number 10, howling and barking, stay away from my, my family, get away from my family. Not really, well, he was threatening, but not in a way that made us feel threatened. And he barked at us the whole time and I could see him through the falling snow and he's hopping up and down on all four legs and his tail's in the air and he's sort of howling and barking at the same time, kind of scolding us and telling us to stay away. It was absolutely incredible. Well, we quickly left the carcasses, we uh, opened up the gate and kept it open and eventually nine and seven joined him and the most amazing thing happened. This is the northern range of Yellowstone Park and they had a due north. They crossed the Absaroka Mountains, the Beartooth Mountains in the middle of winter and landed in Red Lodge, Montana and had a litter. Wolf number 10 and his mate number nine made it all the way to Montana where they successfully had a litter of eight pups. Although it didn't happen quite as they expected, this was the first litter of wolf pups born from the reintroduction project. And these little guys represented hope for the future of wolves in Yellowstone. Unfortunately, not everyone shared the same excitement and joy for the wolves. Shortly after the pups were born, on April 26, 1995, just outside Red Lodge, Montana, wolf number 10 was illegally shot and killed. Mark knew they needed to get number nine and the pups back into the safety of Yellowstone Park, where they could be protected and then safely released. And then the stories go on. He got shot and we found the litter. We um, gathered the pups. We were able to capture number nine using a scat uh, of 10 to bring her into the trap and, um, and drugged and and transported her and the pups. And the pups are just like so, I have a picture holding uh, one of the pups. And we brought him back to the holding pen and then nine raised him with, with us bringing food. Once nine and the pups settled in, number seven, she took off and, and was always on her own after that. So nine and the pups were in the pen and I remember walking into the pen to pick up the bones and uh, to give food to, the, to these animals. And as usual, number nine and, and her pups were running in the very back of the pen, absolutely terrified of us, running so fast they were almost a blur, except for one pup, one pup that wasn't more than a foot and a half long. And he did his best to run circles around us, and he would stumble over a fallen aspen tree that was maybe eight inches in diameter. And he'd do his best to climb over that tree and he'd run around us. Even though we lost wolf number 10, his genetics and his incredible personality lived on in his pups. And still today, the bloodlines of many of the wolves in Yellowstone 
can be traced back to number 9 and number 10. I was invited to be a naturalist in Yellowstone Park uh, with a horse outfitter and I rode um, by horseback. We went into the backcountry and, and set up these amazing outfitting camps and just ate so amazingly well. And I would give uh, nature tours and the wolves would howl. We were actually near a rendezvous site for, for wolves. And now these were wolves that I helped bring in to Yellowstone Park. I had touched literally every founder that was brought into Yellowstone Park. I escorted um, every flight of wolves, there were four flights, and I escorted every wolf that was flown from Canada to Yellowstone and Idaho. And so here I was in the back country, hearing wolves howl, and they were from, some were still the founders. These are wolves that I had touched, and their offspring. One night we were in our, our pup tents. Everyone is, um, the, the tents are set up away from the trees so the trees don't fall in on us. We're out in the open meadows and you can hear the jingle of the hobbles of the horses as they're grazing out in the meadow. And just, just at sunset, we heard this incredible howl, 16 wolves. And you could hear the young animals and the old, older animals with their deep voices and they all let out this incredible voice, this huge chorus, and then it got quiet. This was actually well after dark because we were in our pup tents when we heard the, the chorus and then it got quiet. And then it got very quiet. And then we started hearing whimpering near the tents. And the wolves started moving through the tents. And the, in, and the insecure pups were, were making noises and weren't comfortable being among all this human scent. And I was hearing the sniffings. I'd hear the sniffing of the wolves right outside the tent. Now, I, part of me just wanted to carefully open up that door and watch this amazing experience. But 90% of me wanted to keep that, that flap of fabric, that thin flap of fabric tightly zipped closed, and, and we did. So the next morning, and, and the wolves moved through, the whole pack moved through, and the next morning there were tracks everywhere. They weren't able to get into the cook camp because it was all hung up high for the grizzlies as well as the, uh, the wolves. Um, but my cup was missing. I had a plastic coffee cup sitting on a stump and it was gone. I knew where I had set it. Later in the day, one of the camp members found my cup full of wolf slobber. It had tooth marks all over it. This could have been one of the wolves that I had handled and brought to Yellowstone. It was, and I wondered if, if there was, you know, and it's okay to imagine this and dream this, there's no harm. It's okay, and, and I just wonder if, did they remember my scent? Was there any connection whatsoever? And if there wasn't, that's okay too. But 
it it was uh it was quite amazing quite amazing when you're working with wildlife on projects like this obviously they aren't pets and we don't handle them much or acclimate them to people but still it's hard not to feel some kind of connection to the animals you work with and become so invested in i remember when the last founder died you know we're many generations into the reintroduction now and there are no founders alive it's been many years since that happened and but i remember the day the last founder had had uh, passed away i was finished teaching a course at wolfhaven international and we were all together eating dinner after the course and somebody had announced it there were there were some there was a state wolf biologist with us you know having fun socializing and and of course the wolf center is staying on top of everything in yellowstone and that was an interesting day to know that you know that was the last wolf that i touched bringing into yellowstone along the way with all the wolves mark handled during the project he had a couple close calls where things could have gone horribly wrong. Many, you know, many things occurred along the way. There's a secret story that I maybe shouldn't ever reveal, but I will hear. Uh, <laughs> okay. it, it was, um, I don't recall which flight. We had four flights of wolves delivering them from Canada to Yellowstone Park. Uh, one was to Great Falls. We would be met by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for inspection and to make sure we had the right legal permits. We flew into Missoula as well. Those were the two locations. And one of the trips, we flew into Missoula. It must have been maybe the third or fourth because I didn't actually observe unloading the crates off the plane and putting them into the horse trailers. But one of the protocols is for the project veterinarian to look in on the wolves at least every four hours. So we're flying them in from Canada. I don't recall how long a flight that was. I'm going to make it up and say maybe six or seven hours for loading, prep, unloading. And then in Missoula, we loaded them up in, in a horse trailer, and it was high security because of the anti-will sediment, and it was all unknown. So there were six or eight ranger vehicles. There was a ranger vehicle that drove a mile ahead of us for any roadblocks that might be created. There was one behind us for any ambushes that could occur. We had a second um, horse trailer following behind the first. Um, there was the incident command vehicle, which I was in, which was the, we were, we were behind the, the scout. So we were kind of the lead of the caravan. We pulled up to Rocker, Montana from Missoula. We pulled up to Rocker, Montana, maybe eight o'clock at night. I don't recall, probably a little bit later. And we parked among all the huge semi trucks in this big, huge truck stop. Um, huge semis on both sides of us. And here we have um, a, a pickup truck with a horse trailer full of captive wolf, full of wolves that we're bringing to Yellowstone Park. And all of this is secret squirrel stuff, of course. And nothing to see here. It's, it's fine. It's just a horse. Yeah, just a bunch, of, just a horse trailer. I went into the gas station 
to use the restroom and, and get a candy bar, and I came back to look in on the wolves. I opened up the side door of the trailer, and I caught some movement to the front of the trailer on my right, you know, where it's curved and there's a plexiglass window. I just saw a flash of movement, not enough to catch my attention. And I looked at all the crates, and as I was looking at the crates, I saw one crate was empty. I went, crap, who loaded up an empty crate? <laughs> and I glanced over to the right, and here the wolf was standing in the front of the horse trailer. Oh, my goodness. Parked between semi-trucks in Rocker, Montana. Oh, my goodness. I hope I don't get into trouble telling the story. So the horse trailer is wide open in the back. There's an opening. So the wolf, in a theory, could hop over the back, you know, run across the top of the crates and out the back. But he was hunkered down in front of that curved, clear plexiglass. And I called one of the rangers over, trying to be as discreet as possible. I says, Hey, 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 come on over here. We got a we got a wolf loose in the horse trailer. He goes, yeah, right. And I quickly brought him back to the gate and which was open if there was any way to block it. And energetically there was, because wolves are intimidated by us. And we started making a plan. What are we gonna do? What had happened? I designed these crates to have bars on the inside. There were two gates at each end of the crate. The inside door had bars so I could slide a white pole, syringe pole and drug the animal or a blowpipe, drug the animal in the crate if it had to occur. The outside was a thin layer of aluminum with ventilation holes and screen over the holes so people wouldn't stick their fingers in. Well, the wolf had grabbed the bars and crushed them and pulled them off and then pushed out the door and popped out the door. Wow. It was a bad design. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and so now we're making a plan. What do we do? We're, I don't know, how far is Butte, Montana from Yellowstone Park? Um, we're eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. Could we drive? And I didn't have, um, I had a syringe pole with me and a wide pole, but I didn't have a blowpipe. Um, I actually had an air pistol in, in Yellowstone. So I had to think about that. I had the immobilizing drugs, syringe pole, wide pole, my only drug delivery system. I didn't want to scare the animal out of the trailer by going in. Could we pull the trailer into a car wash and close the doors? That might even gather press, who knows? We said, one guy with different language I can't use, he said, to heck with this, this wolf is fat, happy, and stupid, let's get moving. So we did, we moved, and we drove as expeditiously as possible, and drove down the freeway with a wolf loose in the horse trailer. I was so nervous when we drove down, um, down the freeway, through Bozeman, Montana, just thinking what would happen if that wolf got out in the middle of Bozeman. We drove down the Paradise Valley and, and there was the Ranger Patrol made sure that that intersection was open. So we went on the off-ramp, zipped through the street light, the flashing street light without a stop and just kept going. 
and we were following the horse trailer so we could watch the animal through our headlights through uh, the backlit plexiglass. We got into Yellowstone with a little bit of sigh of relief, but I still wanted to have a controlled release if that was possible. And we called ahead and had them open the maintenance garage, which was huge, and, and get my, uh, my, my air pistol, my Danajek pistol ready. So um, we started winding up the curvy road from Gardner to Mammoth, and the wolf stood up. He had been laying down all this time, and he stood up as we're going up this windy road. But luckily, he stayed in the horse trailer as we drove straight into the garage, closed the door, and then we could calm things down. We could lower our energy, look at the wolf, see what it's doing. I was able to load up a dart, and what I do in those situations, I don't know how my dart's gonna fly in a horse trailer at that distance, so I actually have a, a foam archery target, and I shoot five, six, 10, 12 times with a dart loaded with water, so I know the power behind it, and I practiced, and then, and the wolf's going nowhere, and so then I darted the wolf, beautiful chemical immobilization, it was a 130-pound wolf, which was huge, and I always struggle every time I describe that much weight, but it was 130 pounds, and, um, and we immobilized it, and, and it was, you know, in one of the acclimation pens. So uh, that was quite a harrowing experience during the wolf reintroduction. So yeah, being an experienced wildlife vet, Mark knows how to handle pretty much any situation when wildlife projects don't go according to plan. The key is preparation, preparation, preparation. And, and I learned that over and over and over again. You know, we not only have to have a plan B, but we need a plan C as well. And, and so, and I have to, again, bring this up, five preparation steps I talk about for preparing for a field operation. And I'm, I'm thinking about all of the things that can go wrong when we, uh, when, when we handle animals. I remember radio collaring a mountain lion in Yellowstone Park. It was an amazing capture. It was up Slough Creek in the Northern Range. But we stayed at a backcountry cabin. We were gonna recapture a collared mountain lion and replace her collar. Darting went great. The immobilization was smooth and effective. TPRs were great. Blood collection was good. Uh, sometimes it's, it's challenging due to low blood pressure. Everything went smooth as silk. We took off the old radio collar. We put on the new one. And when the mountain lion was, was all fully processed and starting to have a little bit of movement, which was safe, we let her go. And as soon as that cat was away from my touch, I quickly looked at Carrie and he looked at me and we realized we hadn't taken the magnet off the radio collar. Oh no. It was a dead radio collar. So if you've never used a radio transmitter for tracking wildlife before, basically the transmitter comes with a magnet attached to it. And that transmitter won't activate and start transmitting a signal until you take that magnet off. This prevents the transmitter from turning on before you need it to 
and thus preserving the battery power. So, unless they get that magnet off, the radio collar is pretty much useless. And so we had to grab the, the canvas ground cloth. It's my security blanket in the field. I love that ground cloth. We grabbed this canvas ground cloth and tackled the half-drugged mountain lion with, a, with the ground cloth. This is not the finesse of wildlife handling. And quickly used a knife to cut the electrical tape and remove the, the magnet off the collar so we had an active collar and let we, then we let the cat go. So even that kind of experience will influence, as it does any wildlife veterinarian or biologist, it influences the details we attend to when we plan and prepare and, and, and practice a field capture. That's not a mistake probably that you make twice. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. And so you actually verify the signal. When you are putting it on the cat, you verify the signal. And for me, it's a short way of saying, did you take the magnet off, stupid? But also sometimes when you take the magnet off, the, the mechanism, the electronic mechanism doesn't start activating. And so you have to make sure that it does start uh, initiating. So. So you check off the box, verified uh, signal on the field form. One more piece of the puzzle, yeah. <laughs> At this point, we've only just scratched the surface of Mark's career and all the amazing things he's done as a wildlife vet. So if you're a professional working with wildlife or a student who hopes to work with wildlife in your future career, I would highly recommend you check out Mark's new online course, the Foundations of Wildlife Chemical Capture. It's the online version of the in-person courses he's been teaching around the world for years with rave reviews. And from what I've seen, it's the most comprehensive wildlife capture course out there. And trust me, I've seen most of them. And Mark brings his unique methods that emphasize a calm and respectful approach to wildlife handling. So if you're interested, check out the links in the show notes for more info. Who would you say this course is for? Is it for students, professionals, both? I designed this course, and I know this course will be beneficial for anyone who chemically immobilizes animals. It will benefit anyone, whether they're um, a zoo veterinarian, a zookeeper supporting their veterinarian, a biologist in the U.S. that runs their own operations, um, a animal control officer, um, anyone who has a need to chemically immobilize animals will benefit from this. I've designed it with all the core elements. I had to write it within my field of expertise. And so I know this will be extremely valuable to, for the zoo community, but I'm not a zoo veterinarian. And so the title of the course is The Foundations of Wildlife Chemical Capture. And it is focused on the needs of the wildlife professional, whether they're a biologist or a veterinarian. But it so overlaps those who work with captive wildlife as well. And there are things that an animal control officer doesn't need to know, like how to radio collar an animal, because I talk about basic principles for how to apply an ear tag, how to collar a, an animal, concerns in collaring bears that have a neck that swells up larger than their head, 
Um, I go into a lot of those details, but it all applies the principles of chemical uh, immobilization and how the drugs work, the details of the immobilizing drugs, um, the drug delivery systems, and how to follow those principles as well to get successful and safe uh, drug deliveries. It's all there for anyone who mobilizes animals. And what about students? Do you feel like this is a good one for, for students as well, whether they're vet students or you know, biology students just hoping to work with wildlife in the future? Absolutely. And, and um, I always put them in that group, but maybe it's good that we talk about them separately because this is definitely for zoo and wildlife students, conservationists. It is so basic. It covers the most advanced information. Any wildlife veterinarian will benefit from this. I really believe that. Um, but also it covers the most basic elements in great detail and over and over again, because that's how I teach. They know what xylazine is and how it works and how it interacts with ketamine. And, and so it's valuable to give the student a really strong foundation, understanding knowledge base of tools and techniques. But it's so much more than that because I add the heartfelt values. I give them permission to bring passion into their work, to care for the animals and learn how to bring that compassion and care into the science, into the professional working environment, which doesn't routinely give you permission to do. I tell them, you're the next generation. You can mold the future culture of the wildlife profession so that we openly talk about it. And, and when we are compassionate with each animal, we have low, we work with low energy, we work with calmness, we feel good about ourselves, we empower our colleagues in the field, and we give this beautiful compassion to the animal. That goes out to the world as well. And that compassion and that kindness and we're not supposed to say the L word in the wildlife profession, but even that love goes out to the world and it builds as well. And we can make a difference one animal at a time and one person at a time. I was asking myself, so what do I want now? What, what do I want next? Because I really believe we can manifest if, uh, whatever we choose to, to clarify. And so that's one thing I wanted was to have this course really become alive and vibrant, to truly help the wildlife professionals, zoo and wildlife professionals, and to help the animals, because this is really about making it better for the animals all around the world by handling them in, a, in the best way we can. So I wanted to thank you for this podcast because it's another way to help awaken this course and help it become vibrant and, and, and show it has a wonderful life. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast. Thank you.